God is low tech. The highest heaven is not high tech. He doesn't need it. And neither do we. Man, give me a Bible and a place to sit down and I am good to go. Lots of verses tonight, so write fast. And um, you guys don't even worry about the, the screens at this point. Let's just let them be. We're going to be in John chapter 3. Father, we ask Your blessing on the study of Your Word. And I thank You, Lord, that You're beyond all the technology of man. And that as, as we figure this building and these screens and this sound system and all this stuff out, Lord, that's just not what You're about. And we recognize that we are so blessed to have this roof over our heads, to have a warm, uh, quiet place that we can gather and study the Word and worship You, Father. But we also know that we are not to be about this building. And we are to be about our Father's business. And I again pray, Lord, that we will use this building for Your business. That we will always and only use this uh, for Your purposes, Father, and not get hung up on, on all the things that could distract us. Thank You for making it simple. Thank You, Father, for just without microphones, Father, and without audio signals, and without radio waves, Lord, thank You that by Your Spirit You speak into ours. And there's nothing needed for a person to hear the voice of Jesus but faith. And so we pray for faith tonight. We ask, Lord, that You will encourage us in Your Word and strengthen, Father, the faith within us. If it's a mustard seed faith, if it's a great mountainous faith, wherever we're at in our faith walk, even if there's no faith at all, Father, I pray that You would ignite faith and that we would come to hear You tonight. That we would know more. We pray we want more. We want more of You, Jesus. And we do. We want to know more about You and to understand You better. I find amazing, amazing peace just in coming into Your presence, speaking Your name and and being in Your Word. And so as we continue on, Lord, in the Gospel of Your servant John, recorded by Him so long ago, I pray for fresh revelation and insight and understanding that will deepen faith and grow our love for You. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, verse 22, picking up right there. After these things... Okay, stop. (laughs) After these things, John uses this phrase six times in the Gospel. He will use it another eight times in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek phrase is metatauta. If you've gone through the Revelation study that we've got, if you haven't, it's online, you can go through it any time, but if you have gone through it, you know we talk a lot about metatauta. Because metatauta is that Greek phrase, after these things, and John very specifically uses it to move the narrative along. He does it in Revelation with absolute purpose. Revelation 1.19 reads, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. Well, at that point, what had John seen? He had seen Jesus. And he was to write down what he had seen, that he had seen the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of His glory. That's Revelation chapter 1, and it's absolutely breathtaking. The things which you have seen, and, he says, write the things which are. At that point in John's life, 
The things which are was the church age. It's the time in which he was living. The things going on right at, right at that time. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, talks about the church age. And then Jesus said to him, and the things which will take place after these things. Metatauta. After what things? After the church age. So picking up in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you have this amazing picture of the church in heaven. And then in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation here on planet earth, the seven years of of wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And then in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, we go on further to the millennial kingdom and then the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Now you might be saying, Rick, wrong book, wrong book. We're in the Gospel of John, not the Revelation of Jesus. I know. I understand this. But get me talking about Revelation. It's kind of hard to get off the subject. Here's the thing. It's important to following John chronologically through this Gospel as well. Meditata after these things. And this is the first time he writes it. The first time he says it. So anytime John says after these things, it's it's good to pause and say, well, after what things? And you know, I know, it's after Jesus' nightline interview with Nicodemus. That conversation, we got through about half of it on Sunday. Again, we'll do the other half next Sunday. But if you look back just for a second, this is when Jesus said unequivocally to Nicodemus in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. In verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And again in verse 7, Jesus said, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus, after hearing all of this, was blown away. He was flummoxed. It's a word we don't use enough. Use that this week. It's the word of the week. Flummox. I am totally flummoxed about this. He was baffled. He was dumbfounded. He had no idea what was going on. He's listening to Jesus talk about this idea of being born again. And it was confusing to him. Why didn't Nicodemus get it? Verse 9, he said, How can these things be? He's not being a, a, a doubter. He's not being negative. He's just trying to understand. How can these things be, Lord? Why didn't he understand? I'll tell you why. He had dirt on the brain. What do you mean? He had earth in his ears. He was thinking as a natural man. He was trying to appraise spiritual things from a natural perspective, working it out naturally rather than spiritually, and so he didn't understand. He didn't get it. In verse 12 of chapter 3, Jesus said, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Then Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And we'll talk about that on Sunday. But Jesus used earthly examples to express heavenly things. And for Nicodemus, it just it wasn't translating. Remember where we stopped last Wednesday night. This verse, 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You're not going to understand what the Lord is talking about if you've got earth in your ears and dirt on your brain. If you're trying to work it out naturally. 
And that goes for so much of what the Lord teaches us in the Word. If we try to work things out naturally from the human perspective, I'll give you an example. Tithing does not work on paper. It does not make sense. It's difficult. You know, to go from, especially if if you're not a a faithful or consistent giver, to go from not giving consistently to 10% is like nuts. It's crazy. Of course it is. If you have earth in your ears. But if you're thinking spiritually, you recognize your Father knows and owns everything, and He's the one who provides all you have anyway, so giving 10% back to the Lord, to the Lord, and trusting Him in faith, it makes perfect sense spiritually. It doesn't make sense naturally. And I could give you a million other examples. The question for you and for me, and what I have been struggling with and dealing with this moment by moment this week, I don't get off the hook, gang, it's do we tend to appraise things from a temporal, earthly perspective or an eternal, heavenly perspective? And it is so easy in these fleshly bodies to slip into the temporal rather than to view things spiritually. I've told you before, you know, spiritually does not mean esoteric. It does not mean vague and mysterious and out there. Spiritual things are more real than physical things. We have these physical bodies that are a limitation to the greater, more fantastic, more wonderful spiritual world. And Jesus is trying to draw us into that understanding. To help us to learn how to think with a heavenly perspective. To consider things from above rather than from below. Question for you. Save the planet or save the person? Which one will be here for eternity? In a trillion years, will planet Earth still be spinning? But in a trillion years, will your neighbor still be in existence? Spiritual versus temporal. The LA Times Science Now section... Melissa Healy wrote an article called, Even for the Active, a Long Sit Shortens Life and Erodes Health. That caught my attention. I sit down quite a bit. You know, in my study and in my work. I, you know, I even worked out. Glenn, you know this. I, I got a really nice office chair. When I knew I was going to be, you know, in your because my office chair at home was awful. And so when we moved into the fellowship, into the new building, I said, yeah, I really like a chair. So I got online and I googled eight to nine hour chairs. And I found one, baby. I'm telling you, this is a great chair. This look, it belongs on the, you know, command deck of the Enterprise. It's amazing. Anyway, even for the active, a long time of sitting on a daily basis shortens life. Any roads help? I, I caught, that caught my attention. Listen to this. New research that distills the findings of 47 studies concludes that those of us who sit for long hours raise our average risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and early death. Even for those of us who meet recommended daily levels of exercise. Huh? <laughs> so some of you... Even for you, sitting for long periods of time boosts our likelihood of declining health. And the writer, uh, Melissa Healy, says, In fact, I just worked out intensively for 90 minutes and I'm now risking life and limb to bring you this news. You're welcome. (laughs) I read that. And i got to tell you, the first thing that came shooting through my brain was a physical response. A temporal response. I thought, how can I spend the amount of time I spend sitting down, reading and studying the Word? 
Lord, that's what I do every day. And now I'm finding out that this is dangerous for my health. How can I do this without shortening my lifespan? Let me put it into different terms that maybe you have struggled with. How do I have time to sit and study the Bible? I got too much going on. Besides, if I stop, I die. If I sit, it's over. I got to keep moving. And you know what? When we start to think that way, that's when I need the washing of water with the work. I need to wash the dirt out of my brain. I need to get the earth out of my ears. If you want to extend your life, listen to God's word. 1 John 5.12 He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Hey, the life is in the Son. You want to extend your life? That's how you believe in Jesus and you live your life for Him. And you don't worry about how many hours you spend sitting down. Sitting in the Word lengthens life. That made me feel so much better. So get comfortable. We're going to pick up the rest of Jesus' answer to Nicodemus again on Sunday. But for tonight, don't forget to spiritually appraise these things as we get washed in the Word of God. Going back to verse 22, after these things. Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea. And there He was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Okay, first question. If Jesus was in Jerusalem, how does John say after these things, after he was in Jerusalem with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea? Jerusalem is at the apex of the land of Judea. Jerusalem is in the hills of Judea. And John now is saying, and after these things, he came into the land of Judea. And there are those who read this and they think, well, this must have been reinserted by a scribe later down the line. Back here, it's in the wrong place. It doesn't fit here. And the truth is, any good Jew would recognize that Jerusalem is both in the land of Judea and is above the land of Judea. That when you come out of Jerusalem, you come out of Jerusalem and into the land of Judea. When you are coming through the land of Judea, you go up to Jerusalem, as we've talked about so many times. No matter where you come from in Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. It's 2,500 plus feet above sea level. It's the highest point in the, in the country, with the exception of some of the high point mountain ranges, you know, up in the north. You always go up to Jerusalem. Physically, Jerusalem is higher than anywhere else in the land of Judea. Spiritually, Jerusalem rises above all Israel. As David wrote in Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So when John tells us Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, he came out of Jerusalem and into the land of Judea. Elvis may have left the building, but Jesus has now left Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And he's made his way over to begin baptizing. And we think, I can't be certain about this, but I think he was baptizing at a place called Bethany beyond Jordan. If you head out of Jerusalem and you head directly due east, straight out to the east, eventually you're going to come to the Jordan River. And at that point, straight out from Jerusalem is Bethany beyond Jordan. 
We think that's where Jesus went to baptize. That's where John the Baptist was baptizing. That's where Jesus was baptized by John. Lots of water there. That's a, a nice expanse of the Jordan. Like nice, flat, low land. Great place for baptizing. It's where we go when we're in Israel. Bethany beyond Jordan. John the Baptist had moved, as we just read, his baptismal ministry northeast of Jerusalem to a place called Anon near Salim, which is near Shechem, which is Nablus today if you're looking on a map. So he's northeast. It's a smaller area. It's kind of ensconced by hills and mountains. It's not as easily accessed as, boy, Bethany beyond Jordan Flat. You just walk straight out there and you're there. So John's now in a little bit more of a remote place, a different place than he was at first. A place called Anon. Anon means springs. Lots of water there. Abundant water source. And John 128 told us, Back in John 1.28, these things took place in Bethany beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. So again, John was first there. Jesus comes out and is baptized there. Jesus goes up north, collects some apostles, comes down for Passover, now makes his way back over to Bethany beyond Jordan. He's baptizing there, or baptizing is going on under his oversight. I'll explain that in a minute. And John has moved on to another place. By the way, Bethany... Many of your Bibles say Bethany beyond Jordan or just Bethany. If you have a King James translation, it says Beth-Abara. Beth-Abara is the Hebrew name for Bethany beyond Jordan and it literally means house, Beth, house, like Bethlehem, house of, Lachem, bread, house of bread. This is Beth-Abara, house of the ford. So it's right between the Chevy dealer and the Dodge. House of the Ford. House of the Passage. Bethabara. Why would they call it House of the Passage? Anyone? Why would they call this place in the Jordan River the House of the Passage? That's where they came across the Jordan into the land. John the Baptist was baptizing in the very place where the Israelites, the children of Israel, so many centuries before had crossed the Jordan to come into the promised land. That was the place of repentant baptism. So John's doing that at Bethabara. Now Jesus is doing it at Bethabara. John has moved on. Was Jesus baptizing? And if he was, wouldn't that be cool? You may have been baptized by John the Baptist. I got baptized by Jesus. So clearly, who's got the better baptism? Me! You know? Was Jesus baptizing? I'll tell you later. John was baptizing, and it looks like Jesus, or at least there was baptizing going on here, baptizing going on over there. It's Duncan season all over the place. It's what was happening. And in verse 24, again it says, For John had not yet been thrown into prison, and that's very important to recognize. Why? Well, they say timing is everything. And John is very clear about timing. He reveals something we don't get from the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is the early days of Jesus' ministry. What we get here in John chapter 1, verse 35, all the way through John chapter 3, is all stuff that happened prior to the ministry of Jesus as described in the other three Gospels. Only John tells us about this. Only John brings this to light, as we talked about before. The cleansing of the temple on the first Passover. Only John tells us that. 
Water to wine. The miracle in John chapter 2. Only John tells us. The meeting at night with Nicodemus. Again, it's only through John that we're hearing about these things. And John alone tells us that Jesus is doing baptizing, he and his boys, at the same time that John the Baptist is doing baptizing. It's happening concurrently. Only John tells us that. All of this happened, John the Apostle tells us this, before John the Baptist was thrown into prison. In the other Gospels, that's when Jesus' ministry really gets going. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and then his ministry begins, really begins, gets underway. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 says, After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. (laughs) Remember that one. And news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. So all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin in the Galilee. Most of their Gospels taking place in the Galilee after John the Baptist's arrest. John chapter 1, verse 35 through chapter 3 all happens before John the Baptist is arrested. Bible students remember, timing is incredibly important in Jesus' ministry. John's going to point that out to us. Watch for the signs as we walk through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4, remember at Cana, he says to his mother, who he never calls his mother, he says to Mary, John chapter 2 verse 4, My hour has not yet come. He hasn't even really launched into his public ministry, but he knows his timing. What's fascinating to me is if you fast forward three and a half years to the end of his ministry on that Thursday night of his betrayal, John chapter 13 verse 1 begins, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So from Cana of Galilee to the upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus knew every moment. He was on the clock. He knew His time. He was aware of His time. Do you know yours? Am I aware of mine? Jesus was intentional in every single thing that He did. And the Lord is always challenging His people to be just as intentional. This is an invitation from Jesus, I believe, to you and me tonight. Be intentional with every moment of the day. Know the time. Be aware of the time. Keep your eyes open to the signs of the time. Psalm 39 verse 4 says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Now, the natural man doesn't want to know that. The dude with earth in his ears does not want to hear how transient he is, how, how short-lived life really is, how quickly it all goes by and then you're gone. No one in the flesh wants to hear that. But spiritually, we've got to hear that. We need to be aware of that. Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we might present you a heart of wisdom. Guess what? It's foolishness to ignore your lifespan. It is foolishness to ignore the number of days that the Lord has allotted for you. Mortality really ought to be motivating as opposed to avoided. 
Not a rushed, stressed out, anxious lifestyle, but an intentional one. Ephesians 5.15, Paul writes, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men or women, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. I like the, the true translation of that. Making the most of your time. Well, that, that translates very well to our language. Man, make the most of your time. Come on, I say that to my kids a lot when they're studying, when they're doing homework, or when they're not doing homework, but they're supposed to. Make the most of your time. But what Paul wrote literally, I like even better. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Redeeming the time. Man, redeem the time. Some of you came to faith in Jesus late in your lives. Did you know you can redeem the time? Did you know that for the sake of the gospel of Jesus, you can buy it back? You can have it restored? All that you thought was lost? A life lived for Jesus over two weeks is more valuable than a life never lived for Jesus at all for 90 years. Redeem the time. Because the days are evil. Jesus said in Luke 12.35, Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. In verse 38 of that chapter, whether He comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves, that is, those slaves who are being watchful. I like that verse because whether He comes in the second or the third watch, whether He comes in 2015 or 2016, or 2048, makes no difference to the person who is redeeming the time. Keeping our eyes on Jesus' return. Living toward that day. So at this time already, note that Jesus is moving in purposeful transition and He's utilizing the same baptism as John. Now back to this. John got bumped. John was at Bethany beyond Jordan, Bethabara. He was the one having massive turnout to his baptismal services. And now it's Jesus. And John has had to move to another spot to do his baptizing. You see what's going on here? Jesus is slowly, purposefully, intentionally taking the reins and the following of the people. His church is siphoning off members from the Baptist church. That's what's going on here. At least that's the way John's board of disciples see it. Look at verse 25. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, that's Jesus, but they won't even name him. He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. What's going on here? Well, apparently, some of John's disciples had a discussion with a Jew about baptism and about purification. And some point in that discussion, either this Jew or one of the disciples brought up the fact that Jesus is now out baptizing John. The Jesus ministry is drawing more people and more attention. Now Jesus has got the mega church and John's church is really starting to siphon down. And it bugs them. So they talk about this and they, they come to John. Somehow this conversation with this Jew about purification fires their jealousy. And they come to John and again without naming Jesus they complain that everyone's going out to him now. And I love John for this. Verse 27. John answered and said, 
a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. What's he talking about? His ministry. This was not my ministry. I might say to you tonight, this is not my church. The only reason I get to sit here and teach and am blessed to do so week in, week out is because it's been given me from heaven. And it can just as easily be removed from me. And if that's God's will, bless the Lord. It's given you from heaven. Everything you have. You you realize that? James tells us that. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Everything comes. There's nothing we have. There's nothing anybody on planet earth has that is not from heaven. Anything good. A talent, a gift, an ability, some smarts, some know-how, some strength, whatever it is, it all comes from heaven. It's all from the Lord. And John brings this up. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. In other words, to his disciples, get the dirt off your brains, boys. You're thinking with earth thoughts. You're thinking naturally. John begins right here by correcting gently, I believe, his his disciples from their earthly mindset. And the earthly mindset can creep into ministry so easily. Can creep into church so quickly. It does not take long for us to forget why we're here and what this is all about. And so John is helping his disciples to understand this. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8 verse 5, Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Earth thoughts don't please the Lord. Which is why He's always washing us with the water and the Word to get the dirt out and to get that natural man to start thinking spiritually, that's where he wants our hearts and our heads to be. And so John is saying, all I have, all I've been doing in my ministry, everything that's taken place, it is for God, it is from God, it is to God. It's all His. And John continues in verse 28, saying, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of Him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's why John the Baptist was great. That's why Jesus said of all those born among women, none is greater than John. Of course, those of you who are born into the kingdom, you're greater still. Which still rattles my brain. John was great because he knew who he was not. As we've talked about, he knew he was not the groom. What was John then? He's the best man. He's the friend of the bridegroom. He's the one who stands up for the bridegroom. He's the one that stands next to the groom and points to the groom. He stands for the groom, Jesus, and His bride, the church. Without ever becoming part of the church, 
Did you know that? John the Baptist is not a member of the church. He precedes the church. John is a member of Israel prior to the church. Saved absolutely. We're going to see John in heaven. But he's not a church guy. He was the best man standing for Jesus and His church. And note this, what was John's greatest joy? It was not attendance at his baptismal services. There wasn't turnout for his big events. It wasn't the head count. John's greatest joy was hearing the bridegroom's voice. John's like, dude, you have no idea. I've gotten to hear his voice. And that makes my joy full. It fulfills everything that I've done. I hear Him. I have heard Him. I can point to Him. Now, later in John's life, when he's in prison, you know, he's going he's gonna to have a moment of darkness where he's like, guys, go make sure it is Jesus. And that can happen when you're de- depressed and despairing. But John, he knew. He heard the bridegroom's voice and it fulfilled all of his joy. Let me ask you, is it your joy to hear the voice of the groom? Is that your greatest joy? Now that's something worth kind of pondering as we go through this faith walk, as we move from natural to spiritual, is am I more interested in hearing the voice of Jesus? Am I more joyful at the sound of His voice than any other thing? Or is there something in my life that brings me more joy than the voice of my Lord? Grandkids. I see the kind of joy grandkids bring to grandparents. It's obvious. And you know why, right? Because grandparents, you can give them back. That's the whole thing. Hey, grandkids, don't start to be a problem. Mom and Dad. Is there something that brings you greater joy than hearing the voice of Jesus? You see, we've got one up on John. We are the bride. Have you ever been to a wedding where the best man enjoyed the voice of the groom more than the bride did? That's weird. Something's a little wonky there. No. The bride longs to hear the voice of the groom. Finds greatest joy in the voice of the groom. When Jesus speaks, is that... Your great joy. Hebrews 3.7 Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they, the children of Israel, provoked Me, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. So listen, and listen with joy. And if you're having trouble hearing joy in the voice of Jesus, there's something, something's not right. It should be our greatest joy. Verse 31 So He who comes from above, and John is still... Giving. This is his final address. He's still speaking here. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. In other words, earthly people focus on earthly things. If you're of the earth, you talk about the earth. You think about the earth. You look to the earth. Jesus spoke of heavenly things. No wonder people were so entranced by Him. He was so different. While a lot of the other rabbis were trying to disseminate the law and give people earthly, lawful ways to live their lives, Jesus is talking about heaven. Jesus is talking about eternity. Jesus is talking about things like, oh, being born of the Spirit. And even teachers of Israel like Nicodemus are going, 
I don't understand this, but man, I want more. Because Jesus was elevating people above the earth. He attracted so many simply because He spoke of spiritual things. He also offended quite a few, as you know. And I'm watching, and I know you all are too. And we're seeing more and more people loving the earth. Even Pope Francis. Perhaps you saw this last week. Christian Science Monitor, January 15th, said in his strongest declaration yet about climate change, Pope Francis said on Thursday he is convinced that global warming is mostly man-made. He also said he has nearly finished writing an encyclical on climate change to be published in June that he hopes will encourage negotiators at a climate change meeting in Paris in December to make courageous decisions to protect God's creation. Now the Pope is coming at it from a stewardship angle. I understand that. Please don't ever get me wrong. As children of God, we are to be good stewards of this earth that He's given us. And yet, it goes so off the charts these days. True scientific research does not matter. The money is in global climate change. So that's what you're going to hear. That's where the grants are. That's where the cash flow is. So the Pope says this. He says, quote, I don't know if it, that is human activity, is the only cause, but mostly, in great part, it is man who has slapped nature in the face. Is nature a being? I know. Back when I was a kid, I know it was not nice to fool Mother Nature. She'd mess up your butter. I get that. No. It is man who slapped nature in the face. Now, Pope Francis told reporters on Thursday, ironically, aboard the papal plane. I love that. You know, as they're jetting from place to place talking about climate change. All right. He was en route from Sri Lanka to Manila, the Philippines, and he says, we have, in a sense, taken over nature. I'm like, yeah? Wasn't that the point? I I recall reading something in Genesis, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every other living thing that moves on the earth. God was telling Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, I want you to, to have kids, I want you to raise them in righteousness, and I want this planet subdued righteously. We haven't taken control of the earth. We were supposed to have it in the first place. We lost the title deed to this planet. We lost control of this planet when we sank into sin. And it's not any better. And it will not change until Jesus comes back and reclaims that deed. Again, I'm all for good stewardship, but we need to spend less time saving the earth and maybe a little more time saving the lost. Because as I said, this planet is not going to be here in a trillion years. People will. Human souls. That's eternity. Our focus is not earthly. It is heavenly. After all, that was Jesus' concern. Verse 32, John goes on. What he has seen and heard of that, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Wait, John, people are flung out to see Jesus. What do you mean no one receives his testimony? They're all going out. Yeah, they're going out there for the, for the power and the miracles and the excitement. Even the teaching. They still have not received who He really is. And that's what John is proclaiming here. This one from heaven, this 
Jesus. He speaks of where he's from. He speaks heavenly things. And people are rejecting that. And nothing's changed. Back then, as well as now, the most tragic denial of humanity is the rejection of the Redeemer. The rejection of the very one who has come to save. John chapter 1 verse 11 already told us he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus said in John 3.11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. He was not received. The testimony of Jesus Christ is very simple. It's this. I'm the Savior. And if you will receive me, I will save you. And that's it. It's so simple. It's so plain. But if we don't receive Him, we can't be born again. And if we're not born again, we can never see the kingdom of God. Verse 33. Now, listen up. He who has received His testimony has set His seal to this, that God is true. If you have accepted Jesus, if you have received Him, if you're born again, one of the things that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt is God's truth. This is absolutely right. There is a God in the heavens. He does love me and He did send His Son to this earth. You know this. It's like a seal that is set on you. An absolute. In verse 34 For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, you've got to pause for a minute and think about this. I have used that verse many, many times. Others, I have heard other pastors, other teachers use this verse over and over to talk about how God pours out his Holy Spirit to us. How his Spirit is immeasurable for us. That we can receive as much of His Spirit as we're willing to contain. And and as a matter of fact, that God has already given all of His Spirit, immeasurably. You, You can't plumb the depths. You cannot fathom how much of God's Spirit there is to go around. And so I've I've used this very verse. God gives the Spirit without measure. And that's not what John the Baptist is saying. It's, it's legitimate, by the way. It's true. God does give His Spirit without measure. There is more than enough of His Spirit than you will ever, than I will ever need or require. But what John's saying here, literally, it's, it reads this way. It is not by measure that He gives the Spirit to Him. Now think about the context. Listen to it again. He who has received His testimony has set a seal to this that God is true. For He whom God has sent... Jesus, right? Speaks the words of God. For He, God, gives the Spirit without measure. God gives the Spirit without measure to Jesus. That's what He's saying. That's why Jesus, and this is what John is explaining, Jesus was sent by God, speaks the words of God, because He contained within Him the Spirit of God without measure. Do you understand that? Overflowing, absolutely filled with the Spirit of God. Let me explain why this is so important. Over the centuries, the Lord sent dozens of messengers. Right? And each of these messengers, each of these prophets, was given a measure of the Spirit. 
I see Naomi sitting at the counter with her little measuring kit. For Christmas, she got little measuring cups and, and things so that she can make, bake little cupcakes and things. And each of the prophets got a measuring cup of the Spirit. Some got more. You know, some prophets would get, get a whole, a full cup of the Spirit. Others would get a third cup measure, you know, some a tablespoon. Just what they needed, what God knew they needed to perform the ministry that He called them to. Each one got a measure of the Spirit. And again, the measure was different among them. John the Baptist was the last in that line to receive a measure of the Spirit of God. And I can tell you exactly how much John got. Same as Elijah. Luke 1.17 tells us he came in the power and the Spirit, the Spirit and the power of Elijah. John's measure of the Holy Spirit of the living God was the same as the measure that Elijah got. Elisha got a double portion of that. So that's how I know that there were different amounts given depending on the need, depending on the prophet. And then God sent Jesus. Remember the parable? I'll send my son. They've kicked out all my servants. They've beaten a few. They've killed a few. I'll send my son. Maybe they'll respect him. Now listen to this. In the Gospel of John, John specifically refers to Jesus as having been sent from God an interesting number of times. 39. 39 times John says, in one way or another, God sent Jesus. Jesus was sent by God. He who was sent of the Father. 39 times. Is that a wow to anybody else? How many books in the Hebrew Scriptures? 39. What's the point? Well, whether John intended it or not, or it was full-on inspiration of the Spirit, the whole entire Hebrew Scriptures, 39 books, was preparation for He who was sent from God Himself. He fulfilled the 39. John would say 39 times, God sent Jesus. Why? Because in Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Law and the Prophets. Everything we read in those 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures is to point us to the one who would fulfill. Jesus said, Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus was sent as the fulfiller of the law, He Himself being filled with the Spirit without measure. It's John the Baptist's way of saying this one was so full of the Spirit that He is God. I mean, you can't be more full of the Spirit than Jesus was. Why? Because the Spirit is Jesus' Spirit. It's who He is. I and the Father are one, He says. And so... John is hinting here at the nature of Messiah filled with the Spirit of God. Now, listen, because this is, this is critical for our lives and how we, how we walk, how we are vested with the Spirit of God. Jesus was never not God. Okay, let's be very clear about that. Never, and, and I have to say that because there are theologies out there that think that there were times where Jesus wasn't God, where He set aside His Godness and He was just a man. And then the godness of him came back into him. I mean, it's really weird. But be clear about this. Scripture is absolute on this. There is never a time when Jesus was not God. But from his birth all the way to his baptism, 
he by choice limited himself to his human capacity. He was fully God and fully man. And I'm going to give you my opinion on this. But the reason we see no miracles from the birth of Christ all the way to the baptism of Christ is because he could not do them. Because he was fully human limited. Still by nature God. But without the power. Well, where do you get that? Philippians 2, seven. He emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And we've talked about that word emptied, kanuo, in the Greek. And it means Jesus divested himself, not of his divine nature, but of his divine power. Set aside the power, set aside the glory, took on human flesh, fully man, though in nature still fully God. But limited by human flesh. Do you realize what a risk that was? How dangerous that was for Jesus to do that? That for 30 years, He was vulnerable as you and me. A little baby in a manger. A carpenter in Nazareth. No doubt the hammer hit the thumb a few times, although without cussing. Because in those 30 years, what did Jesus do? As a man, showed us how to walk. How to live. How to be right with God. Without the power. Set it aside. And then at His baptism, the immeasurable potency of God's Spirit was poured out and remained on Jesus from that time forward. And this is what we're told in John chapter 1, verse 32. John the Baptist earlier on testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and He remained upon Him. John repeats that. I did not recognize Him, but He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. What John is telling us is the outpouring of God's Spirit on Jesus was not, listen, was not in carefully measured portions. It was all out. It was... It was without measure. The Holy Spirit. Not little prophetic portions. But when Jesus was baptized, came up out of the water, and the Spirit came upon Him, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in full flow. Just as Isaiah said he would. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So get this. What Jesus did in his baptism. This is where it applies to you and me. What he did in his baptism exemplifies the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you didn't understand it before, if you've struggled to understand what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? First of all, it's not something that was coined by Pentecostals. It was coined by Jesus Christ. He's the first one to say it. John the Baptist said it as well. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. You can look it up. It is a Jesus phrase. As far as I'm concerned, if it's a Jesus phrase, I'm in. Whether or not I was raised with that tradition... The baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus showed us what this is like. 
having already have, having the Spirit within Himself. Okay, for 30 years. The Spirit was in Jesus. Indwelling Jesus because the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of God. Same Spirit. So it's not like He was this empty human vessel and then the Holy Spirit came into Him. No, the Holy Spirit was in Jesus for those 30 years. But at His baptism, the power of the Spirit came upon Jesus. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible describes as the baptism of the Spirit. Here's the thing. Because Jesus already had the Spirit indwelling in His human body, He, unlike anyone before Him, could handle the full flow of God's Spirit. The full outpouring. The full baptism. Wasn't a problem because the Spirit of God was already there. If Elijah or Elisha, or one of the prophets received the full outpouring of God's Spirit, it would have wiped them out. They would have been flat out on the ground weeping for the rest of their lives, unable to do anything. You know? Because the power is immense. Jesus comes along and says, I want to show you something here. This is what it's like to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you already have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Do you know where I'm going with this? Same is true of you. We come to faith in Jesus. We receive Him as Lord and Savior. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The indwelling presence of Jesus Himself. His Spirit makes His home in your heart. That being the case, when His Spirit is at home at your heart, you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, Rick, you're talking about it like it's two different things. It is. And I didn't make this stuff up. Again, I'm coming from a very different tradition than that. It took me 50 years to get to where I understand what I do now. I'm still learning. Even this week, I was going back over it. How do you know it's different? Because in John chapter 20, Jesus said to the apostles, Receive the Spirit. And He breathed on them, and they received His indwelling Spirit. And then, later, at Pentecost... The Holy Spirit came upon them. That's two events, gang. That's two different things that took place. First, He gave them His Spirit. Then He poured out His Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. Two things. Were the apostles better? Because they now have the baptism of the Spirit. Were they more righteous? No, they just have more power. To do what they could not have done otherwise. Jesus in His baptism shows us this. Man, when you're born again, Jesus comes in again. He makes His home in your heart. And having been filled with the indwelling Spirit of God, you now can receive the outpouring of God's Spirit and it's not going to waylay you or wipe you out. And I, for one, believe you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit over and over and over in your life. I don't think it's a one-time thing. I ask for wisdom. I pray for discernment. I ask for God to give me what I need at the appropriate time. Gifts, callings, anointings, they can change. They can be unique throughout your life. It's a dynamic. It's power. The Bible talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as power for witnessing. Bring in the Gospel. I'm not a powerful witness, gang. On my own, Cheryl will tell you this. On my own, I'm head down in the supermarket aisle. I don't talk to other people. I'm not interested in what you're buying 
My wife and my mother-in-law will talk to anybody, anywhere, about anything. I'm the one pushing the cart. Come on, hon. That's my nature. I am naturally just not an evangelist. The power to be, to get outside of myself, to witness, to testify of Jesus, that's Holy Spirit stuff. That is not Rick stuff. And the power of the Spirit is to minister to the body. Notice I didn't say the power of the Spirit is to roll around and get electric jolts through your system. God is not a thrill ride. His church is not an amusement park. His Spirit is for a purpose. To minister in the body and to spread the gospel. But it is a power gang that if we don't have, if we don't receive in our lives, we are less than we can be for the kingdom. His Spirit indwells us when He comes into us by faith and then, man, we are empowered to do the work of God. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Keep your finger there quickly. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. And I know what some of you are saying, this is why we're only doing John chapter 3 tonight. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 3. This is so important though. I'll tell you what, I was, I was ready to blow right on through chapter 3, head on into chapter 4, and the Lord said, uh-uh, look at this, look at this. Just kept bringing me back to that. Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to hear Paul's prayer. Less often quotes this, it's beautiful. Paul's prayer for the saints. I believe if Paul were standing here right now, this is the prayer he would pray over us tonight. Verse 14, Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Note that. Through His Spirit in the inner man. Spirit needs to be in the inner man, or there ain't no such thing as a baptism in the Spirit. God's not going to baptize someone in the Spirit who doesn't have His Spirit in the inner man. And he goes on and says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Note that you may be filled up to, what does he say? All the fullness of God. That did not happen until Jesus' baptism. Nobody prior to Christ was filled with all the fullness of God. Nobody. Nobody could handle that. But Christ comes along and shows us, hey, when I'm dwelling there, you can handle the power. Because I will take care of it. And I will direct it as it needs to go. In dwelling and coming upon in power. Paul is talking about the fullness of He who gives the Spirit without measure. And so, back to John chapter 3. Yes, indeed, He gives the Spirit without measure to you, to me, to anyone who is born again today. The Lord would tell you right now, I'll give you my Spirit without measure. Well, how come I don't have your Spirit without measure? All you got to do is ask. All you got to do is ask. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, John 14, 12, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, he will do also. 
And greater than these He will do because I go to the Father. What? The influence of the power of the Spirit of God, the work of the Spirit of God, would be far greater worldwide, globally, than it was when Jesus was on the planet. Because when Jesus was on the planet, the work of the Holy Spirit was in one man. But now in the church? Oh, you guys have no idea, Jesus is saying. I'm going to go to the Father and this is going to explode. And it did. Still exploding, by the way. I know there are those in media and other places who would like to tell you otherwise, who would like to make you think that Christianity is on the downturn in the world. It is not. It is still growing by leaps and bounds. The power of the Spirit at work. Now, question from earlier. Was Jesus doing the water baptizing? Was He doing it Himself? Because if He was, I would have liked to have gotten in on that. You know, How unfair. A few people get to be baptized by Jesus Himself. That would be cool. But he wasn't. He wasn't doing the baptizing. His disciples were in the water. He was on the shore. Even if he was in the water, he was not the one dunking and bringing up. He was not the one doing it. Verse 2 of chapter 4, if you'll skip ahead and just look at this quickly, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So earlier in John chapter 3 where it says that he was spending time with his disciples and baptizing, what it indicates, what John's saying is, baptizing was going on under the authority of the ministry of Jesus. But he himself was not doing it. Why? Why not? Why wasn't Jesus in the water doing that? Why wasn't he wearing the waders? Come on, Lord. Why weren't you in the water? Because Jesus doesn't baptize with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's His baptismal ministry. That's what He offers. That's what He promises you and me. And here's the thing. Some of you tonight, perhaps because of tradition or or past Bible study or or where you're at in in your interpretation or understanding of Scripture, you may hear what I'm saying and go, eh, I'm just not comfortable with that. Okay. He's not going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit without your permission. It's not like you're going to be walking home and go, Oh, man, Lord! Now i got all this power. I don't know what to do with it. I'm down in Safeway. I'm witnessing to everybody in every aisle. I'm like Rick's wife. It's terrible. He's not going to do that. <laughs> He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Anyone who asks. Anyone who's been born again. Anyone who already has His Spirit dwelling within you. If you want the power and the anointing and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is simple as saying, Lord, baptize me in the Spirit. Lord, pour Your Spirit out on me. I know Your Spirit is within me. I know Your Spirit has come alongside me. I'd like Your Spirit poured out upon me. But you need to ask Him because He's not going to dump it on you without your permission. Luke 11.11, Jesus said, Suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? No, I might, but most of us. not. Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give a scorpion, will he? If, 
We have time. No, we don't have time for that. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask Him? He gives His Spirit. Just ask. That seems awfully simplistic and not very theological. Right. God is low-tech. He is not into all this difficulty and, you know, confusing, esoteric, mysterious stuff. Like, if you want my spirit, ask me. If you want me to pour out that power, ask me. Well, John the Baptist concludes his final testimony in the Bible with a summation of his entire ministry. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The Son, Jesus, has it all. The Father has given all things into the hand of the Son. That is all authority. That is authority to save. That is authority to judge. All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus said, has been given to me. And John the Baptist said it right there. The Son. By the way, you will never once in the Gospel of John hear any followers of Jesus referred to as sons. Children, yes. We in John's Gospel are called children of God. The only Son is Jesus. The huios in the Greek. We talked about that word a few weeks back. Huios. It's the inheritor. It's the firstborn. The Son. Who in... Greek and Hebrew thought both is equal to the Father. The Son. And what does the Son command? He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we got to obey the Son. What is it that the Son commands? What is the single command of Jesus Christ, the one you must in Scripture? You must be born again. Now that's interesting. He doesn't say you must be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You can. But you must, you must, you must be born again. That word must, D, or or die in, in the Greek, must, used right here, used in, in John chapter 3, verse 7. The root word is D-O. Again in the Greek, D-O. Which means to bind together as in linen wrappings around a dead body. In other words, when Jesus uses the word must, or when you see the word must, the direct translation of D or D-O, when you see that in Scripture, that must is something of absolute necessity. There is no way around it. There is no alternative. Absolute. You must... Be born again, Jesus is saying there is no alternative. That's it. It's as absolute as linen wrappings around a body. As absolute as the death of Jesus. As absolute as his resurrection. You must. There are three absolute musts in John chapter 3. Let me end with these. The first is you must. The second is I must. And the third is he must. 
You must. John chapter 3, verse 7. You must, Jesus says, be born again. That's the you must. The I must is John chapter 3, verse 14. We'll see this on Sunday. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I must die, Jesus is saying. Because your born againness depends on it. You must be born again. I must be lifted up. And finally, the third must is John chapter 3, verse 30. John says, He must increase. I must decrease. Wait a minute. That's four musts. Isn't it? You must be born again. Son of man must be lifted up. He must increase. I must for decrease. But Ricky said there were only three musts. There are. The fourth must is not a must. The fourth must is inserted by translators. When John says, and get this, he must increase, I must decrease, John didn't say that. What did he say? John said... He must increase, I decrease. That's a little different, isn't it? The word in the Greek is elatuo, and it means to become less. I, I must become less, but he doesn't even say must. He must increase, I decrease. It's what I do. Do you understand that every single one of us decrease, whether we want to or not? He must increase. I decrease. It's not that I must decrease. I just do. I am in a decrease mode. I sit for eight or nine hours a day. I'm decreasing. (laughs) Physically, every one of us are on the decline. We decrease. I know some of you younger people are like, yeah, but I'm getting bigger. I'm getting stronger. Yeah, your decrease is coming. (laughs) Long about 21, 22, and we are all waiting for it. When that first hair drops off your head, we're like, see? See? You decrease. (laughs) At 40. It's not that we must. Again, it's not whether or not. We do. We just decrease. He must increase. We decrease. John's decrease is not emphatic. It's more of a resignation. And so here with John's very last sermon, we get John's Resignation. John is resigned to decrease. He must increase. He's the Son of God. He's just going to get bigger and better. I, on the other hand, I'm going down. I'm on my way out. Our physical bodies, gang, this stuff of earth and dirt, of motes and molecules, by nature, decreases. And it really is wisdom to number our days. We decrease. And here's the thing. You can be resigned to decreasing into the dirt. Or, you can be resigned to renewal in the Spirit. I can sit there for eight or nine hours a day, and i got to tell you something, gang. My spirit is increasing. The Bible tells me that. 
So is anyone who has been born of the Spirit. Here is the beauty of our decreasing into Jesus, of our being born again. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Transformation. Instant. Amazing. Remarkable. Glorification. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all, with unveiled face, that is with spirit eyes, seeing spiritually, aware of things because of the Lord in our lives, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So, whatever her name is who wrote the article about long sitting, she's wrong. Because I'm increasing. I am being transformed. Even as my body decreases, my spirit is being renewed and transformed into readiness for that day. As to whether or not you choose to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I leave that to you tonight. But I guarantee you this. If you are born again, you are in the process, even while your body is going down, your spirit is going up. And you are increasing in the Lord and in the Spirit. And that is good news. And Father, we pray to you tonight thanking you for your work of transformation. Thanking you, Lord, that you have chosen to literally abide. I don't know how it works, but I know you're here. I know you're with me. I am aware of your presence. You have chosen to abide in my heart. As you said, Jesus, that you and the Father, you come and you make your home in me by your Spirit. And I am so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that your presence is here and you go with me and you lead me gently. And Father... That would be enough. And for many it is. I know in the the church today, for many followers of Jesus, it's enough just to know you're there. And that's a good thing. Father, it's my prayer that here at the Bridge Fellowship, more and more, we would be desirous not only of your indwelling presence, but of the work of your Spirit and power to be poured out on us that we would see more hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that we would see more desirous of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is very simply being submerged and immersed Your Spirit upon us to do Your work. Fill us, Lord, to do Your work. Indwell us that we might be at peace with You. And we pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.